True crime is a massive entertainment genre. There are thousands of books, documentaries, and podcasts dedicated to the very real, very disturbing things human beings are capable of. Lawyers often play an important role in these stories, whether they stay behind the scenes or steal the spotlight with arguments that rhyme. I know Allie and I are probably the biggest true crime fans of this group. Joe and Andy, where do you stand? Yeah, it's not really my thing. I, I can't think of a single true crime story that I've listened to, but I'll be excited to see what you guys come up with for today. <laughs> yeah, you could say that I'm like moderately interested. Uh, I still have have not listened to Serial. Uh, I've yet to watch Tiger King, but I did watch the Stephen Avery one, whatever it's called, and... Making a yeah, murderer. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay. And and that uh, staircase owl <laughs> attack one. What? What? Owl attack? How have I never heard of this? Oh, man. You've never... Oh, yeah. The staircase. It's pretty sweet. I'll explain in a minute. Okay. Yeah. We'll finish up the intro and then we'll get to that. Thank you all for joining us on this genre-bending episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Today, we're talking about lawyers in true crime, the nation's first tabloid murder trial, and a recent Seventh Circuit case with an Agatha Christie-style twist. Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the podcast about the real life of lawyering. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Allie Marshall. Oh, hi. <laughs> Wow, are you sleeping over there? Jeez. No, no. <laughs> I thought you I'm were here. so excited about this true crime episode. I am. I'm looking up one of my shows that I love. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see who else we have here. Joe Fabush. <laughs> hey, everybody. I still can't get over Allie's introduction. I, I love how she's watching true crime while working. <laughs> I'm not watching it. I was yeah, looking I, up facts about it. What? Whatever. I don't, I don't think I believe you. And finally, Andy Leonati. Hey, so, so <laughs> the staircase is about this. Yes, uh, tell me about the staircase. He's an author who, uh, he, like, his wife was murdered. She was found at the bottom of a staircase with, like, big, like, head lacerations in the back of her head. And uh, he was found guilty of her murder. And then it also turns out that, like, his next-door neighbor, when he was stationed in Germany, like, 30 years prior, also died under the same, like, mysterious circumstances. But he's now out of jail because oh. the, like, forensic scientist head BSer, uh, surprise, surprise, lied about, like, all of, like, the blood splatter <laughs> stuff that, like, I've always had my doubts about. Um and so he like took an Alfred plea to like involuntary <laughs> manslaughter instead, and he's out now. Um, but like one of the alternative theories for like why she died was that she she was like walking into her house. It was late at night, and she got attacked by an owl, which like clawed up the back of her head. Oh. Then <laughs> My God. she went in. Ah! Then she went inside, and then she was going up the stairs to like go to the bathroom and like, you know, tend to her wounds. And she got like woozy and just fell backwards down the stairs. And that's why she was fell downstairs, had big head lacerations <laughs> and her husband named Michael Peterson, who right. for the record, I think is extremely guilty. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah. Oh yeah. But, 
<laughs> what a hot take. You really, you don't think it was the owl? Oh my God, that is unbelievable. I have, I have actually never heard of that case, but. It's called The Staircase. It's on wow. Netflix and it is wild. I totally think the owl did it. <laughs> have you ever seen an owl? I think that's um, what we call throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> I mean, stranger things have happened. Have they? Michael Peterson, I, I, I believe you. You don't need to come for us. I, I 100% oh, wow. buy that story. Okay, well, I, I, I don't have anything quite that... Um, I get, there are no owls in the story that I'm about to tell you, but I am very excited to... Um, share this story with all of you. So if you would all indulge me for a few minutes, I'd like to fulfill my dream of hosting a true crime podcast. Uh, feel free to react with <laughs> shock and awe if you'd like. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Does one of us have to die for this to happen? Are you going to solve our well, murders? I'm, oh, I can't murder. tell you that yet. I nominate <laughs> Allie. <Aww. laughs> it's been a long week. <laughs> Yes, the, <laughs> I've kept this episode very under wraps from everyone else, and now it turns out that I'm actually going to murder one of you and then solve it. I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Anyway. Feels like cheating. <laughs> it's the perfect crime. So I've often heard people ask, why is true crime having such a moment right now? Why is this the entertainment that people are looking for? And in my opinion, the answer is they always have. Every 10 years or so, we have a case that seems to reignite the public's interest in the macabre. You know, we've got the prolific serial killers of the 70s and 80s, the O.J. Simpson trial, um, Casey Anthony. Guilty. <laughs> yes, we know. We know, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think something that people don't often think about is that lawyers are always right there in the middle of it. So take our nation's first murder trial. On December 22, 1799, 22-year-old Juliana Elmore Sands, known as Elma to most, left her boarding house in Greenwich Street in New York City at around 8 in the evening, telling her cousin Hope that she was going to elope with her beau, 23-year-old Levi Weeks. Elma had recently moved to New York to work in a millinery and had reportedly begun a relationship with Weeks during the summer of 1799. She came from a respected Quaker family upstate, and Levi Weeks was a carpenter whose brother Ezra was a well-known architect. Although the two tried to keep their relationship a secret, other boarders later testified that they were caught in compromising positions all over the boarding house. Ooh. Naughty, naughty. I know, right? 1799, nothing ever changes. Nothing changes. <laughs> So when she left the boarding house that night, she told her cousin that she and Weeks were engaged. But when later questioned about it, Weeks claimed he had no idea why Elma would say they were getting married. Weeks reportedly left the boarding house around 7 or 8 that evening to have dinner with his brother's family, returning home later that night. Elma was never seen alive again. <gasps> there you go. That's what I was looking for. Oh. Gosh. <laughs> so a Randy so Trist. <laughs> Turns into uh, indeed. Turns into, <laughs> <laughs> turns into no. murder. Murder most foul. Indeed. So a few days after Elma's disappearance, a young boy found the fur muff she had been seen wearing near the newly constructed Manhattan Well, which was about a twenty-minute carriage ride from the boarding house. Oh. A couple days later, on January second, the well was searched and Elma's body was recovered. Oh, Suspicion man. quickly fell on Levi Weeks. Yeah, I know. People were drinking out of that well. What? People are drinking out of that well, too. 
<laughs> oh no! That's oh, so I haven't thought of that. Oh no! That's it's like really that. Gross. Oh, it's like that hotel case in California a few yeah. years ago. The girl who ended up in the water tank on the roof. I need to. Uh, I don't know. I need to find different forms of entertainment. This is getting like. <laughs> oh wait! What are the injury? What are the injuries? Um, they were pretty inconclusive. Well, and of course, uh, you know, back then the coroner is also a dentist. So it's like, it's <laughs> the, the injuries were inconclusive. They did think that she had been murdered, but that was, that was really the only conclusion they came to and that she probably well, drowned. She didn't die of gingivitis. So <laughs> <laughs> inconclusive. <laughs> like, uh, she appears to be deceased. Like, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> So suspicion quickly fell on Levi Weeks, who seemingly already knew where she was found when he was brought in to identify the body as he asked the coroner if she had been pulled from the well. Probably not the smartest thing for him to bring up. It made him look a little bad. Although a couple days before, you know, an article of her clothing had been found there. So it's it's possible that that's how he knew. But that was something that people latched on to, you know. Old lusty Levi. As his oh friends God. called him. Do they have CCTV footage? In 1799? No, I don't think so. Walking by the well. Oh, I feel Just like it needs to be a drunk history reenactment of some kind. Oh, I know, right? Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that they haven't done this one, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, unsurprisingly, he was soon indicted for murder. And so began the nation's first tabloid murder trial. So the boarding house was run by another cousin of Elma's, Catherine Ring, and her husband, Elias. And the Rings were convinced that Weeks had killed Elma, um, so much so that they began leaking details of the investigation to local reporters and fanning the flames of public public opinion against him. So, super professional, you know. (laughs) Well, I mean, they, you know. Hey, freedom freedom of the press. Yeah, well, and they want to see this guy convicted. That is true. They wanted justice, and that was that was something that drew, it drew Weeks's legal defense team to him actually, which I'll get into right now. Uh, Weeks's defense team includes some familiar names, especially if you're a musical theater fan: uh, Henry Brockholz Livingston, Aaron Burr, and Alexander Hamilton. Boo! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I asked myself when I was researching this case is how did a young carpenter manage to procure such prolific attorneys? And as with so many things, it turns out it's all about who you know. Hamilton and Burr were already fierce rivals by this point. Um, Hamilton's political career was on the decline following a sex scandal involving a married woman. And Ezra Weeks actually built Hamilton's manor house in Harlem. So as always, it's always just follow the money. And Burr also had financial ties to Weeks building projects and had defeated Hamilton's father-in-law in a run for U.S. Senate eight years earlier. So them working together was probably not the best idea if you really think about it. But the legal community in New York was small at the time, and they both very much believed that Weeks was innocent, so they agreed to team up for this high-profile trial. I think there's a song in Hamilton about it. There, there is. is. I was yep. just about mm-hmm. to bring that up. Yeah, if anyone's keeping track, this is the trial they reference in the song Nonstop, which is at the end of Act One of Hamilton. Still have not seen it. I mean, you know, it's it's Don't either your thing or it's it. not. I'm a fan. It's on it's, Disney. You know, you can watch it. 
It, you do have to set aside Disney. three hours for oh, it, though. It is very long. But yeah, so the I, it, one, if you want to get really nerdy about it, the timeline is a little bit different in real life than it is in the musical, but I'm not going to hold anybody to that. Laura, I appreciate that you're turning this into a history and politics podcast. Yeah. I think you've done yeah. this for yeah. my benefit to kind of ease me into the true crime <laughs> genre. Because you knew that I would just be gone if we just went straight into like a 1972 something or other. <laughs> so now, now, you matters, Hamilton, now you got Hamilton, now you got Burr. Right. Now, I know. now I'm interested. I'm engaged. Well done. Yes. Yes. That was my plan all along. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know I'm a bit of a history nerd, so... This, you know, this part was inevitable. So moving on to the trial on March 31st, 1800 onlookers packed into New York city hall to watch the proceedings. A large crowd gathered outside calling for justice. And by this point, pretty much everyone in New York was convinced that Levi Weeks had killed Alma and they, I mean, they wanted his head. It was intense in at this time. Most trials were wrapped up in about a day but his murder trial dragged on for 40 hours over two days. So both days of trial, they were, yeah, they were at the courthouse until one or two o'clock in the morning, both times. Wow. Um, So I would say the scheduling these days is just slightly better. Uh, The prosecution gave a lengthy opening statement, which included weirdly extended remarks on the legal prowess of the defense team. Like he spent a lot of time talking about, Oh, look how he great was like the defense fangirling. The he defense was, team. it was very strange. <laughs> and, and it's, it's interesting because like, because of the public um, interest in this trial, it was the first criminal trial to be fully transcribed. And so I read parts of this and he did, he kind of fangirled over Hamilton and Burr for several minutes. Um, and then the funniest part is then Burr gets up and he wastes no time in poking fun at the prosecution for this. And he starts his opening statement with gentlemen of the jury, the patience with which you have listened to this lengthy and tedious detail of testimony is honorable to your characters. It's just like, Ooh, 1800s burn. Burn. Yeah, I was just gonna, old timey. It's, burn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As it turns out in real life, Burr was a little bit less, talk less smile more than he is in the musical. He definitely clapped back on that one. Ooh, good one. <laughs> nice. Thank nice. you. Uh, so the prosecution painted a picture of weeks as a man who had falsely misled a young woman with promises of marriage only to lure her into a trap to kill her. Uh, they also posited that Elma might've been pregnant and that weeks had killed her to avoid a scandal. However, they had zero direct evidence linking weeks to her death. Meanwhile, the defense called medical experts which I think one of them was a dentist. So I'm not really sure. You know, it's, it's 1800. We do the best we can, but did they have a lot of uh, blood spatter uh, quote experts? No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, actually I'm remembering now that it was the prosecution who called the dentist and he hadn't actually examined the body. He just saw the body when it was on display um, during her wake. And he was like, Oh, I think I saw, I think oh, I saw man. strangulation marks on her neck. <laughs> it's like, what? Oh my First of gosh. All, you're That's a dentist. Awesome. Like, you know, and That's but then awesome. meanwhile the defense called the actual coroner and some other medical experts to explain that Elma's body didn't have injuries consistent with being beaten, nor was she pregnant at the time of her death. And they also argued that she may have been depressed and possibly died by suicide as she had previously threatened to kill herself. Wait, so she jumped in a well to Commit People do crazy okay. things, Allie. I, don't I guess. Know. 
I guess. How deep was the well? That I don't know. She's in New York. <laughs> There's bridges and water. Uh, like, I yeah, that I don't know. I were were there bri- there were bridges over like the Hudson River at that. At There's that no bridges point? then. I don't. No bridges. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a bridge expert. Damn it. <laughs> Probably nothing yeah, like as high know. as the George Washington Bridge. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah, I guess. I I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't right. there. <laughs> I thought you were. I thought that's why we were talking about this. <laughs> yep. I'm a time traveler, as it turns out. That's a different show. Oh, yeah, that's a whole nother episode that I'm planning. <laughs> it's pretty easy to see how this trial dragged on for several days because a total of 55 witnesses were called. And Ooh. yeah, it was just a, a little bit frustrating for everyone involved because they all had conflicting accounts of what happened. Um, you know, Catherine Ring and Hope Sands both testified that Elma left the boarding house with Levi the night she disappeared. But on cross-examination, they both conceded that they didn't actually see the two leave together and they only heard Levi's voice in the lobby. Um, meanwhile, several witnesses testified that they saw Elma that night riding in riding in a one-horse sleigh, which I had a really hard time <gasps> reading it without <laughs> oh, hearing baby. Christmas songs. <laughs> so, yeah. But it was December. And that's how people got around. So supposedly she was seen with two men in this sleigh. And it was a sleigh that resembled one that was owned by Ezra Weeks. But this whole time, Levi maintained that he had not seen Elma the evening that he disappeared. So in in the end, the prosecution's case was entirely circumstantial. Meanwhile, the defense produced several witnesses who testified that Weeks was with his brother and friends um, at his brother's house for dinner all evening. And finally, at 2.30 a.m. on April 2nd, the defense finally decided they were they were done. They said, OK, we're, we're going to rest now at 2.30 in the morning. Um, to his credit, Hamilton opted not to give a closing statement. Um, he was exhausted. The jury was exhausted. And he believed they'd proven their he case. Was, too t- was he too tired he to was. rap? He was. He's like, you know what? I'm done. I can't. <laughs> I got no rhymes left. <laughs> it's, there's nothing left in the tank. And possibly because it was 2, 2.30 in the morning or because there wasn't a whole lot of evidence against him, the jury only took five minutes to deliberate and find Weeks was not guilty. <laughs> uh, but the public... I know, wow. right? Wow. <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> but the public was convinced of his guilt and Weeks was pretty much ostracized by New Yorkers until he was forced to leave the city and resettle in Mississippi. Was he tarred and feathered? I don't think so. I think he was just harassed. <laughs> Drawn and quartered. Um, I, I don't know if he if he encountered any, you know, physical ramifications from this. Taketh thine self out of our Get fair city. out of here. <laughs> but I think one thing that I want to highlight is that more than 200 years later, the murder of Elma Sands remains unsolved. All right. So, Laura, thumbs up or thumbs down on Levi's guilt? Ooh. Like, what do you think? We can do this because it's, uh, you know, because two centuries it's 200 old, years so ago. I don't think we're going to hurt yeah. anyone's. Yeah. You know, yeah, based on based on the trial transcripts and a lot of the inconsistencies, it I don't think he did it. Um, I think he maybe knew something, um, but it, it doesn't seem like he had any reason to kill her. And he had a. I think he put he a had hit a pretty on airtight her. alibi, but I mean, yeah, who knows? He might have he might have convinced his brother to get involved, um, somebody else from the boarding house. Um, oh, one thing that I didn't bring up is there's there was a really dramatic moment during the trial that 
afterwards, both Hamilton and Burr took credit for doing this. So who knows if it even actually happened. But the story goes that one of them in the late hours of cross-examining a witness who also lived at the boarding house, they say that one of them like held a candle up to his face and they were like, we know it's you. Just tell us that you're the one who did it. And the guy's like, I didn't do it. <laughs> so that's pretty fun. But I, I, he didn't crack even with a candelabra in his face. So I don't know. Man, I'm surprised that nobody challenged him to a duel. That's true. Right? Well, like, wouldn't that I be? I mean, I, you know, duels were. That <laughs> would have been a much different musical. <laughs> like, if it was Burt or Hamilton. Yeah. Totally different well, story. And, and, you know, anybody who's seen the musical knows that duels were duels were on their way out at that point. Um, oh, so someone couldn't still demand satisfaction could, from Mr. Weeks. people weren't doing it as often anymore and I don't think they were doing it in New York anymore. It was not trending. Yeah, it just, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't cute anymore. But but for the murder trial of the century. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That was much more 1780s. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think he did think it. You think he did it? Yeah, just like Michael Peterson <laughs> and Stephen Avery. God, you're calling everybody out today. Wow. Once again, I think everybody is innocent. Oh, Joe. <laughs> don't, don't come after us. <laughs> we believe you. We believe in the criminal justice system. <laughs> and uh, we, will, we will mind our own business. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Please, I, Kathleen Zellner uh, frightens me. As she so, should. Uh, she is a formidable attorney. So. If we could get her on the show, that would be I... super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my true crime story for the day. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, Joe will fill us in on a Seventh Circuit case that sounds a lot like a murder mystery novel. Artificial intelligence continues to reshape America's legal system. One sophisticated AI tool is QuickCheck Judicial, which analyzes multiple filings from a single matter, showing judges what cases you and your opponent did or did not cite. This gives judges greater insight into both sides' arguments. But what if you could gain that same insight using the same tool your judge has? Well, now you can. Quick Check Judicial is coming later this summer. Be the first to see it. Visit tr.com forward slash quick hyphen check. And we're back. Wow, what a refreshing break, right? <laughs> so, Joe, why don't you tell us about this um, Agatha Christie murder case in the Seventh Circuit? So, yeah, this is not a... Uh... Well, it, it's sort of a true crime, um, but I'm coming at it from the, the murder mystery genre. Um, like I said, I'm not really into true crime, but I do like to read murder mysteries. And one of the people I like to read is Agatha Christie. And in the 1961 book, The Pale Horse, there's this nefarious group of ne'er-do-wells <laughs> who use black magic to... Really to kill people. Gonna stop you right to stop there, you Joe. <laughs> oh come on! That's, I know. I just, that's a great part of me word. wasn't sure if Are you were doing me? it on purpose or if that was just you talking, and <laughs> that fact made me laugh. <laughs> like it, am I am I consciously that dorky? Yes, I am consciously that dorky. All right, carry on. <laughs> okay. All right. So the so this group is supposedly practicing black magic on a small little English village. Uh, and they're using thallium, which is a rat poisoning, 
to murder people very slowly and without any uh, trail leading back to them. And they would have gotten away with it. If it wasn't for these uh, kids and their dumb dog. (laughs) Yeah, if it wasn't for these kids. So anyway, this guy reads this story, apparently, uh, really likes it, and and then thinks to himself, hmm, you know, I'm planning on murdering someone. I bet I could use thallium. It's brilliant, right? And um, I watch so, Forensic Files. Thallium, like, it, it is more... It's been used for a lot of murders. I'm just saying. Like, oh my it, God. it's out there. It's trending. Yeah. <laughs> trending. So, yeah, so this used to be a rat poison that was actually widely used. And actually, Allie, because of that, like, they, you can't use it as rat yeah. poison anymore. Yep. Um, but this guy, you know, I don't know where he got it. Maybe on the dark web or something. He, he bought some <laughs> thallium, allegedly, for, to use as rat poisoning. His argument was that just coincidentally, his wife contaminated all of her food and not any of his food. Sure. Completely by accident. <laughs> um, what are the chances? Yeah, no, it oh was. God. It I was kept strange, trying to put sriracha but, you know, on this, that, and it just turned out to be rat poison. I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So it was a brilliant defense. Um, the other thing that he did was write a basically a poisoning manual, like he was going to write a book on how to poison people. Um, and he actually did it. So that's that's probably <laughs> not a great sign if you're being charged with attempted yeah. murder. Yeah, um, I love it when they write a book. <laughs> if I did it. This oh, is how no. I would do it. Right. Um, so, yeah, he, so, so he's got a poison murder manual, and um, he was going to testify mm-hmm. in his defense, right? But the uh, but the his attorney understandably said, "Look, the judge is going to allow all this evidence of your you know poison murder manual and the fact that you threatened to kill your wife if she left you, and there's going to be a lot of bad stuff here. So let's just sit this one out, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. Like that's good advice, right? So his his whole thing with on appeal was that you know, his lawyer had provided um, ineffective counsel because he told the jury that at first he was going to testify in his defense and then took it back. The circuit wasn't having any of it. They said, you know, look, this evidence is overwhelming. We don't need Hercule Poirot, or however you say his name. I don't know. Poirot. Ooh, Andy French. There we go. There we go. (laughs) I like it. Anyway, he he could take the day off on this one because this was a pretty... Pretty open and shut case. Um, they can test for thallium now. You know, not that any of our listeners would be interested <laughs> in poisoning people, but if you were, they can. But there's no like, there's no antidote or cure, right? Like once they have it in their system, they're like pretty much. If they have enough, it's lethal. I don't every know. Time. There's no like, right? Well, maybe, but in this case, the wife did survive. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm. so she just didn't have enough. That might be, didn't yeah, something yeah, similar yeah, happen a couple dose. years yeah. ago with a woman yeah. who, who wrote murder mystery novels and then it turned out that she had been poisoned for several years? Am I making this up? That sounds familiar. Well, I feel like that was the show Murder <laughs> She Wrote because it's like... Everyone dies around her. Why would you be friends with her? Like, that's... She, yeah. she was totally guilty. Why would you be friends with her? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I never understood that either. <laughs> She's typing away there, and, you know, Joe the Butcher is gone. So anyway, this, this guy is in jail. We, we know not to take murder mystery novels too seriously. Should have used Lily yeah. of the Valley instead. 
What is that? What's... Whoa! That just... Am I the only one who watched Breaking Bad, I guess? Um, yeah, I, I skipped that oh, one. Oh, I don't no, remember that I part. I didn't finish the oh. series. I did watch it, but I forgot that part. We have that plant in my yard, and now after watching Breaking Bad, I stay away from it. <laughs> were you planning on eating it before? Or it, fr- it frightens me. <laughs> I think poisoning is just, like, such a diabolical way to go about it. Well, like, yeah, because it, it's it's, just... it takes planning, and it's... Yeah, it's subtle and not to make it sound like I think it's cool to poison people, but like, why do you guys think that, like, Laura, why do you like true crime stuff? Like, what is it so interesting about it to you? <sighs> yeah, you know, well, and it's funny because I've had people ask me if, if going to law school is the reason why I like true crime. And I actually didn't take in any true crime entertainment until like a year after I left law school. I think for me, it's just kind of an interesting, I guess, character study of people and just what can lead people to end up in drastic situations. Yeah, the sociology, the psychology of it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I like hearing about bad cops. (laughs) I know you do. (laughs) Well, then, I mean, yeah, then in that case, definitely look up some of the stuff on, like, the serial killers from the 70s and 80s because it's a lot of, like, you know... Yeah, the oh, the victim ran out of Jeffrey Dahmer's house and said, please help me. And the cops were like, well, I guess he's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really like true crime, but I did watch uh, that mafia show mm -hmm. on Netflix uh, with Giuliani. And I did like that. So I don't know if that counts, but I I do like hearing about the mafia just because, you know, they're they've got the code and they've got a certain Mm -hmm. twisted like ethics that they live by and it's kind of interesting to see yeah. like, how they justify the the horrible stuff that they do and then that was also it was just kind of fun to hear about how they went after yeah uh, the mafia it was kind of like watching an episode of the wire or something like that yeah so I, I i don't mind it but i'm not really a big fan of it okay so we didn't quite convert you with this episode well we'll see i don't know i mean no <laughs> i mean that the the hamilton and the burr twist i kudos because uh yeah i am interested in this case and i want to read more about it what about the angle though of like i guess so i'm drawn to true crime for i've always Mm -hmm. been even before i went to law school and i probably in part because i'm just interested in like like you said laura like what brings people to this place like how do they get there where they're they're making these decisions or how are they driven Mm -hmm. to this but then also as a lawyer like I love the stories where the lawyer, where it's lawyer is hero mm-hmm. because we don't often get to be portrayed in that way. And sometimes it is like a lawyer at the root of this. Yeah. Somebody's been accused wrongly, you know, and they're defending that client. And then the truth comes mm-hmm. out to actually get justice for that family. But I think that that's also like wanting something to have a just result is just inherent in, you know, being mm-hmm. a lawyer. Like you just, you, I mean, that's, it's human too, but I feel like as a lawyer, you're really always fighting for that too. You want you want a fair outcome. So sound you should watch. Uh, you should watch Bluff City Law. If you feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I like that, Allie. We need all the help we can get. Everybody yeah. likes to rip on their lawyer until they mm-hmm. need one, until they're falsely accused of a crime. So. Well, and the system has to work. And lawyers are part of that accountability Mm -hmm. and making the system work. Yeah, definitely. 
All right. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Please rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if there's a legal topic you'd like us to cover, please reach out to us at podcasts at tr.com. Thanks for listening. I'm going to take us so far from the <gasps> real life of lawyering. You're not even going to know what podcast you're on anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a segment. Time traveling lawyer. Ooh. Like the <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> it's Laura, happening. Laura, are you mad that we've turned this into true crime mystery science theater 3000? No, no. This is exactly what I wanted, actually. Also a good show. A, yes. No, that's exactly what I wanted. Otherwise, it's just me like talking into a can for 20 minutes and I don't want to do that. <laughs>